Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 243rd episode of the podcast, and today we're talking science. Well, more accurately, we're talking about science. I am not a scientist. I've talked to a lot of really smart people in my day as it relates to conservation and ecology and wildlife biology and fisheries management and all those things. I've had the privilege of being able to spend a lot of time with these folks back when I was involved in uh, conservation at a really deep level when I lived in Pennsylvania. And then, of course, over the last few years as I've been involved with casting across various interviews for uh, podcasts and for articles, as well as just some of the the various and sundry activities uh, I've been able to be involved with. So I am drawing on a very uh, wide, but kind of shallow uh, experience base when it comes to the topic we're talking about today, which is trout genetics. So why trout genetics? Why do you want to listen for the next 20 minutes to what is essentially a couple of anecdotes and some cursory information about trout genetics. Well, I would say there's two main reasons why trout genetics, why fisheries uh, genetics in general and wildlife uh, genetics uh, kind of, you know, at a more broad level are worth paying attention to. The first one is, is not as important, and that has to do with curiosity. Uh, it's interesting to know exactly what you're fishing for. It's interesting to know what's going on in your local stream. What makes maybe your stream on your watershed a little bit different than the stream that you fish on the watershed on the other side of the mountain? Is there a difference or are they the same? How closely related are the brook trout in stream A on your side of the mountain to the brook trout on stream B on the other side of the mountain? That's a curiosity level thing. If you are, if you like to geek out on fish and different fish species and strains and subspecies, then this is the kind of thing that may very well be interesting to you. But at a much more important level, and something that actually ties in with that aesthetic and curiosity uh, issue that I mentioned before, is the conservation aspect of knowing trout genetics, fish genetics. So it has to do with conservation as a kind of a broad picture, which of course has to do with protecting what's already there. But then within conservation, there's the idea of restoration, recovering or restoring what may be diminished or completely lost. And trout genetics plays a very, very integral role in this process. And it's something that we're able to do now that we couldn't do a hundred years ago. We couldn't do, you know, in, in the early stages of the conservation movement, particularly as it related to stocking fish. At the most base level, I think we're all aware that it is 
hazardous. It is detrimental to a native or wild population of fish to have genetically inferior, homogenized fish stocked on top of them that can then interbreed with those fish. Any sort of sort of uh, special uh, adaptations that those fish have in that particular watershed are going to get uh, not not just uh, eliminated uh, immediately, but they are just going to be uh, diminished. And so you're going to have more susceptibility to all sorts of negative issues that could come up. And that's something that we're, we're aware of. So I mean, really, when it comes down to it, why do we not like stocking uh, non-native uh, brook trout uh, from a, a area from maybe down south into an area up north. Well, they are maladapted to that area. But moreover, why take a genetically uh, homogenized, again, you, you know, it is a, a hatchery program that is taking all sorts of different brood stock, all sorts of different genetics, combining them together to kind of create a generic fish and put that on top of a fish subspecies or strain that is inhabiting a particular uh, uh, watershed. So a population, that population has been there for as long as those fish have been there um, with, you know, of course, ecological or geological, hydrological issues notwithstanding. So why would you want to compromise something that is doing just fine? And instead of stocking over that population, why not just help improve it, changing the regulations, maybe even shutting down fishing for a while, maybe just uh, having greater protections for land access or for river use, things like that. Ha all of that information is, is important and it's big and there's multifaceted, but where a lot of that starts is utilizing genetics to identify what is happening. What fish are we actually talking about? What fish are we looking at? So I'm going to talk about a few different things in this episode. Uh, I really lean heavily on a recent conversation that I had with Jordan Ross of, uh, of both J.P. Ross Fly Rods as well as Trout Power. You go to troutpower.org. You can learn all about what Trout Power is, what Trout Power does. They are at present primarily concerned with cataloging and preserving and restoring the uh, brook trout populations of New York. His desire, their goal is to spread across the East Coast to utilize this data in anywhere that brook trout are found. And I don't want to take for granted where brook trout are found. Brook trout are found as far west as the Great Lakes, as far south as Georgia, all the way up the eastern seacoast and into Canada. Of course, their native range was much larger than it is now because of habitat degradation, because of acid rain, because of overfishing, because of all sorts of other mitigating factors brought on by uh, just progress, um, the, their range has shrunk down significantly, even being extirpated from significant portions of their native range. That being said, brook trout have been reintroduced to a lot of these places through those hatchery programs and those stocking programs that I mentioned earlier. Now, before I go further, I want to say that I am not completely opposed to, and not like my opinion matters much of, of at, at all, I'm not a completely opposed to stocking. Stocking is a completely viable option for streams and rivers and lakes and ponds and water bodies that cannot support trout year-round. Uh, and in this situation, this is a great place to introduce people to fishing, to give people an opportunity to catch a very fun fish, and to catch a fish that grows relatively inexpensive and is grows relatively quickly. Uh, and so I have no problem with stocking programs. I also have no problems with stocking wisely. 
putting rainbow trout into a fishery that also has brook trout. These fish, although they certainly have a bit of an overlap in the Venn diagrams of their niche, they are not on top of each other in the same way that perhaps a different strain of brook trout would be onto a native strain of brook trout, or even a brown trout would on top of a, a brook trout. But we're kind of getting far afield. Uh, getting back to trout power, and Jordan Ross in our conversation. Now, I did write an article about Trout Power. If you want more details about this organization, you can go to castingcross.com, put Trout Power in the search bar, and you'll find that article with all of those links. And like I said, I would encourage you to check those out. But one of the things that we talked about, one of the things that I, I thought was really important to establish right out of the gate is how can you identify different fish different populations within a uh, one species. And this is one of the things where sometimes you look at two different fish and you say, okay, here is a brook trout that is very, very dark with ha that has lots of bright spots. And here's a brook trout that's very, very light and has more muted spots. Maybe it has a bright orange belly, whereas the other one has a, a darker belly. Now, when it comes to brook trout, uh, this has very little to do with their genetics. Now, this isn't necessarily the case with brown trout. For example, the brown trout uh, that we have in the United States were stocked from different populations. They were stocked from continental Europe. They were stocked from Scandinavia. They were stocked from uh, uh, England and, the, and Great Britain. And so you have different strains of fish that came over that have certain characteristics that go back to these very distinct populations of salmotrata, of brown trout. But that's not necessarily the case when it comes to brook trout. So consequently, the eye test is not a valid way of identifying different fish. Now, this is something that is also applicable when it comes to cutthroat trout, which we'll get to in a second, which is kind of the, the, the next big uh, uh, topic of conversation for today's podcast. But this is where the, the genetics really play a significant role in this. There's so much that we can do with um, electroshock fishing, electroshock fishing, electrofishing, electroshock fishing doesn't sound like fun, with electrofishing, with habitat uh, surveys, with uh, doing all sorts of stream data gathering with our hands, with nets, and with our, with our eyes. But it requires that data that you get from genetic testing to actually discern where these fish come from, which populations they are most distinctly related to. And so um, there's this assumption that uh, brook trout have been homogenized, that they have been around long enough, that uh, they were able to move through major arterial waterways enough that they are they are basically the same species in big regions of the country. Certainly there would be differences and people would assume there'd be differences in the Southern Appalachians versus New England. But the assumption is that there was a lot of this regional uh, homogenization of brook trout, but that's not necessarily the case. More and more, we see that different watersheds had different environmental factors and the separation and the isolation of these populations of fish provided for populations to become discernible from one another at the genetic level, where there may not be discernible aesthetic differences. The fish might look exactly the same, or you might fish that see fish that have uh, discernible differences to the eye, both in their proportions as well as in their coloration within a water body. But this has nothing to do with their genetics. There's very little to do with genetics. I don't want to say there's nothing, but very little to do with their genetics. It has everything to do with adapting to that population of in that watershed. And so 
what you run into is finding out that you can't just say, okay, we're going into a region of New York or a region of Pennsylvania, or we're going to stock fish to try to restore. We've taken fish out of watershed A, and we're going to put those fish in watersheds A and B because they are adjacent to each other. Now, is that going to completely wreck the ecosystem? No, I think we need to be realistic and say it's not going to wreck the ecosystem. But if if there can be, and there ought to be, more deliberate and careful work done, what we can do is put the right fish back in the right place. Now, this has led to some pretty interesting uh, finds through through tout, trout power in their work. And all they're doing is they're going out with with folks, and uh, you know, four or five people can lead a gr- grassroots effort. Um, for fifty dollars, you can have a sample identified. It's just a little fin clip. It goes into a little sterile vial. It gets sent off, and uh, and it gets analyzed. And more and more of this data, uh, you're able to determine what the populations are and how they're distinct from one another. But there's some pretty cool anecdotal stuff that is backed up by data. So I guess it's not anecdotal, but it's it's examples of how this is being used in neat ways. So, for example, um, the Hanandaga strain of brook trout. So this is going to be brook trout that looks like any other brook trout that you're going to catch. But in uh, this region, they were thought to be extinct, extirpated because of acid rain that these fish were completely wiped out. So you just got to throw generic homogenized brook trout into this lake and into the the rivers downstream. But out of nowhere, uh, researchers started finding brook trout in the lake outlet. So they were right underneath where this lake was pouring out into a river. And uh, one of the things that they known for a long time is that brook trout can be sexually mature when they are very, very small. And this is primarily because um, they're designed that way, but also because char have to deal, so all char, brook trout included, have to deal with harsh environments. You think that the fact that, you know, the the brook trout are um, the most southerly char that we experience. There's many other species that you find uh, the further north you go, lots and lots of cold water, uh, including long, cold, freezing winters. So they are able to become sexually mature mature at very, very uh, young, uh, you know, small sizes. Um, And what they did going in and doing more research is that these brook trout weren't necessarily uh, up high in the water column. They weren't in the banks. They were hanging out in cold water seeps, 30 feet, 80 feet down. And uh, they, that is where they, their populations were being maintained. So um, although acid rain can have significant and devastating effects on a water body, you know, top to bottom, uh, you're going to mitigate those factors and have a little bit of a buffer and a little bit of a safer zone as you get deeper down. And in these cold water seeps, that is cleaner water. If you've ever seen you know, in a uh, a hot summer day, uh, a bunch of fish with their noses crammed into a spring, they're doing the exact same thing there. It's for thermal purposes, but it also can provide uh, more more chemically uh, pure water. And so this is what these brook trout were doing um, in the Hanandaga region. And so they started finding these fish and were able to discern that these are not stocked fish that found their way here, but these are those native fish that were able to cling and able to survive and had more fish gotten thrown on top of that, then inevitably those those fish would have either gotten marginalized even further or maybe maybe even just been absorbed into a homogenized stocked trout population and not had the chance to survive uh, and, and remain a distinct genetically uh, identifiable population of fish. So have we lost a lot? Yes, we've lost a lot, but we, there's so much we can preserve now based upon what we know about fish through genetic testing.
something that we probably are all aware of if we've been if you've been fly fishing for 10 15 years been paying attention to conservation work that trout unlimited has done or even the um you know fish and wildlife service has done out west is the greenback cutthroat and how uh probably 15 20 years ago we had this great revelation that there there's greenback cutthroat they are not extinct we found them and uh we, we're reintroducing them all over rocky mountain national park and places like that um and a lot of that was being done by the eye test. Now, I don't want to diminish or, uh, un, you know, undersell the valiant efforts of a lot of these groups that were trying to restore the greenbacks, but uh, it, it was not the meticulous effort that happened back in 2012. So a few doctors um, uh, in Colorado started doing this genetic uh, analysis of the fish that had been reintroduced, these purported greenback cutthroats, with old museum samples of fish that were confirmed to be greenback cutthroats. And what was found is that there was not a match, that these fish that were um, presumed to be greenback cutthroats were actually a different strain. However, there was still a population of fish in Bear Creek outside of Colorado Springs that was a genetically pure, genetically uh, similar uh, population of greenback cutthroats. But this was not part of their naked native range. So actually, the interesting thing here is that it seems like either stocking or transplanting fish was what actually saved a genetically distinct subspecies of greenback cutthroat trout. So the fish that we thought we had lost we thought we found from the eye test and some other sampling, but then once DNA and genetic testing got more sophisticated about a decade ago, we realized a lot of those fish were not what we thought they were, but we did find some fish that were greenback cutthroats, pure greenback cutthroats, but they shouldn't have been where they were. They were outside of their native range. So that means that a person put them there, in, whether it be through Colorado or whether it be some private entity. I don't know if that's been determined uh, since I, I read about the story a few years ago. Um, but what this means is that now they're able to attempt to reintroduce these fish first established a, a thriving population in this creek. And I think they actually found another creek kind of close to Bear Creek where they have uh, genetically similar fish. But what this means is that these greenback cutthroats are actually having a chance to come back. So really interesting story. And again, greenbacks uh, have a lot more genetic differences. Um, and they also have a lot of aesthetic differences compared to brook trout. And the aesthetic differences of cutthroats do have to do with their genetic uh, distinctions from strain to strain or subspecies to subspecies. Whereas I said earlier, brook trout, it's not so much the case. So this is why you know, the, the eye test is very, very helpful. The eye test is going to help you tell, help you tell if you have a Lahontan cutthroat versus a greenback cutthroat, but you're not going to encounter those fish in the, in the same day. It's going to help you determine whether you have a rainbow or a brown trout. I mean, that's a good thing to do. But once you get much more granular, once you're fishing in streams where you have different subspecies or different strains adjacent to one another, it's going to require that genetic testing. It's going to require a little bit more legwork because the environmental factors are going to have an outsized influence on the, the proportions. So fin size, uh, girth versus length. Um, all sorts of stuff like that. And of course, the coloration of the fish has to do with diet, has to do with the, the makeup of the stream bottom, has to do with even the chemical composition of the water, all of those things. And even, and to take it a step further, 
even has to do with, with that fish's lifestyle. So a fish that may be more nocturnal and is going to remain um, out of view and in, you know, under a, a submerged log or under an undercut stream bank throughout the day is going to have a darker tone than a fish that swims out in the middle of the river. Now, this is not tried and true, but stuff like this has been observed and has nothing to do with the genetics of the fish. It has everything to do with the behavior and the location of the fish. So again, 18 minutes of a primer, 18 minutes of just a broad overview, but hopefully it whets your appetite. Hopefully it makes you wonder what you're fishing for. Now, does this mean if if you get hooked up with an organization like Trout Power, for example, say you live in Massachusetts like I do, and you start to do genetic sampling, and, and you can do this, whether it's your Trout Unlimited chapter, whether it's you and your fishing buddies, whether it's a local conservation organization, you can go take fin clips, using the right equipment, using the right processes, send them off and have that information analyzed. And you can actually start to create a catalog of the brook trout that live in your streams. Find out if they are genetically distinct from one another. Find out if they are maybe traceable to a hatchery. Um, if you sometimes hatcheries and state fishery wildlife uh, management organizations have great records, sometimes they don't. But all of this information can kind of help put together a composite image of how fish up and down the eastern seaboard, particularly as it relates to brook trout, have been managed, what those populations are doing, where they've come from. And it's simply a great way to satisfy curiosity. And if you find that that small native you know, uh, stream actually has a distinct native population of brook trout, then that is the kind of thing that may very well uh, push some sort of protections or push some sort of aid over the top because it it's a way to determine that this isn't a bunch of stocked fish that are clinging to life, but these are fish that have clung on through all of the habitat degradation, all of the acid rain, all of uh, the you know overdevelopment, all that sort of stuff that that has unfortunately happened to a lot of these brook trout streams in suburban and uh, even rural parts of of the East Coast. So lots of information there. Go to Trout Power. Go to the um, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the Colorado Trout Unlimited um, you know website, and you'll find out all sorts of stuff on greenback cutthroats. And this is a story that can be replicated anywhere that there are native trout or anywhere there were native trout. So if you live on the West Coast, this is something that you can learn about when as it relates to you know rainbows and then goldens and you know if you move up into the Rockies, bull trout and all these different species. And and it's something that also could be at a much you know greater level talked about as it relates to fish like salmon and steelhead and uh, what those populations look like. That's a little bit more of a dire story, unfortunately. But this doesn't mean just because things are dire that you can't make a difference. It doesn't mean that you can't be interested. And so my encouragement to you is to at least have a small functional knowledge. It wouldn't take a lot of reading and a lot of time for you to uh, surpass what I just talked about uh, regarding knowledge of trout genetics and the purpose and the value of having an understanding of those, not just for aesthetic enjoyment, but also for conservation and for restoration. This week on castingacross.com. First article is the first part of an exciting kind of at least two-part series that I'm going to put together. Um, and uh, I'm calling it Ed, Flea, and Me. So as I alluded to last week on the podcast, I got a hold of an Ed Shank 
fly rod, a custom fly rod from uh, limestone legend uh, Ed Shank, South Central Pennsylvania. Um, it is, I think, five and a half foot, and I just found out it is an early 1960s rod. So if you Google Ed Shank fly rod, you're going to see a lot of kind of translucent amber blanks with red wraps. This one is completely different. Um, I believe it is a Grizzly Fenwick, uh, Grizzly or Fenwick blank, um, and but I'm still doing a little bit of research on that. But I know exactly what, what this rod's provenance, everywhere it's been, uh, and so I'm very confident this is an early Ed Shank fly rod. So why does that matter, and how did I get it? I started telling that story on Ed, a flea, and me, part one. So I'll inevitably revisit this uh, uh, this fly rod and its story, and and now my story with it uh, in an upcoming podcast. But for now, I'm just putting out a few different uh, posts on this topic. Wednesday's article is called Independence Day 2023. So I uh, usually don't produce full-size articles around holidays, as I'm often busy with various and sundry celebrations, but I do want to put something out. And part of that is I want to maintain consistency. And part of that is I'm a little nuts about the idea of a schedule and always putting out three posts a week. So another website I frequent put up a very brief post yesterday. And for years, this guy's published a photo that, quote, represents America to him. But more often than not, it's a kind of a jab at something political with just enough sentimentality so that people don't, uh, you know, don't just get angry at it. But I figured I'd do something similar, only a little bit more cheerful. So check out that picture and uh, why I, it's something that I think represents the independence and why I'm thankful for our country and the freedoms that we have. This week's recommendation on the podcast is a little redundant, but I'm going to send you to troutpower.org. I'll put a link to Trout Power down at the bottom of this podcast show notes over at castingacross.com. There you can read all about Trout Power. You can read about what they do in a much more eloquent and articulate way than I was able to briefly summarize in this podcast. And you're also going to read some more of those success stories. You can also find out how you can get involved either by contributing to Trout Power, how being a part of what Trout Power is doing, actually donating enough money so that someone can uh, have a fin clip uh, tested for its uh, DNA provenance and all of that. So uh, definitely check that out. And uh, there's some some cool media on there, some great pictures. I mean, pictures of brook trout just can't get enough. Uh, so I will encourage you to head over to troutpower.org. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, placed and things that go into the pursuit of fish. game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment you'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing but as i've learned no matter where i've been whitetails can be damn tricky pursuing wild game in wild places Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.